Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast. Welcome to Season 2, Bonus Episode 1, The Tim Ward Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Tim, welcome. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be a guest on your show. Yes, I'm excited to have you because whenever this episode drops, Tim and I are talking on May 8th, 2020. And even though I don't normally mention dates, today I'm going to because it has a, it has a significant meaning and it's great. Tim has a resilient series. It's a 10-book series of how to deal and live and cope and adapt and overcome during the coronavirus outbreak. What's amazing is not only does he have this 10-part series, but I'm going to let Tim explain how it came about and the speed at which it came about. So, Tim, thank you for being here. This is certainly timely. And let's start the show giving a little background about yourself. I know you and me were talking about how you mountain climb and went with your son and have some great experiences, but take us back. Let's just get a little personal bio on Tim. Sure. Well, um, you know, I'm a 62 year old author of, uh, of 10 different, 10 different books. And I also became a publisher several years ago and I had a very strange moment when we all went into lockdown in March uh, I'm sure like many of your listeners, it was quite traumatic to suddenly, you know, realize this virus was so bad that you have to be very careful about not catching it because I'm 62. I'm in one of those older risks, risk groups. And um, so my wife and I moved to someplace that's pretty safe, but I was going crazy just trying to mm. figure out what was going on. I could feel myself kind of, kind of spiraling. And at about that time, the head of my publishing company, John Hunt, muse to those of us who were, you know, are working virtually with the company, would it be great if there was some way that we could help get some of our best expert authors advice on how to deal with the coronavirus out there and do it really, really fast at an unprecedented level of fast. And this just hit me like a lightning bolt. Yes, this is not only what we need to do, but it's what I need to do. So I volunteered to take this on. My imprint within the company is called Changemakers Books. They're books written about transformation, how to transform your life, how to transform your society. And so I already knew this huge network of authors. So I started contacting them. I contacted about a dozen of them, told them about this idea. And what I said quite specifically was, can you write a 20,000 word book that consolidates your knowledge in this field of resilience in 20 days? And 10 out of the 12 said yes. Now, these are people who are, for example, experts in adapting and planning. The guy who wrote that book is a professor of cognitive behavior and also runs a, a, a business called um, uh, Disaster Avoidance Experts. Uh, I, I, somebody else who's uh, a, a retired minister wrote a book on aging with courage in a time of crisis. He's been working with older people he himself is 72, but he's been working with older people, helping them find ways to make sure that their lives are deep and rich with meaning. Well, right now, those 
people who are older are the very ones who feel the most isolated and alone and often cut off from the things that are meaningful in their lives. Uh, there's a book on anxiety that I commissioned by somebody who's not just an expert on anxiety, but he himself has had to deal with depression, anxiety, and bipolar issues as a young age. So he's walked his own walk. And he now is an advocate for people with mental illness. He knows this stuff. So I got each of these folks to distill their best wisdom and make sure that it was filled with practical exercises. This is not just a book about becoming resilient. It's a book to help people get more resilient in their own lives. Because I realized this is a big moment for us. It's not something we're going to be able to go into lockdown for 10 weeks and then come out and, ah, it's over. We're starting to really have to cope with the fact that this pandemic is going to be with us for at least a year. The, the big one of 1918 was with us for a year and a half. So we have mm. to adjust our lives and adapt. We can't just go back to normal. There's no normal to go back to. We have to become more resilient if we're going to make our way in the world. And so that was the challenge that I took on. And I'm thrilled to say, David, all 10 authors delivered on time. Our production team went from taking four months to put books through to two weeks. So within five weeks, the books were finished, produced, and today they are released on Amazon as an ebook, and they'll be available next week by the middle of May. Anybody who wants them should be able to have a copy in their hand as well. Each of these 10 different books about one aspect of resilience. Yeah, and that's incredible. To anybody who's never worked in publishing or worked with publishing a book, it can take months. I mean, just the author's thought process alone could take months, let alone editing and production. So how did you pull that off? Yeah. And in fact, you know, the, usually it takes people, it takes me more than a year to write a book, <laughs> just to do the writing. Yeah, then, I'm 43 and mine's not right, done yet. Right, right. And then the publishing part, that usually takes like several months and then getting it into bookstores. Well, we were able to cut the bookstore thing out right now because we just went straight, not just to Amazon, but all the other online retailers, including many independents who do that. So the book's available that way. But uh, really, it was like warp speed for the publishing industry. I mean, when people think of publishing, they're not wrong to think about roomfuls of editors sitting there with their cups of tea, deciding, what about this comma? <laughs> shall we keep that in or shall we take it out? So we just went flat, warp speed, pedal to the metal to get these suckers done. You occasionally hear about, you know, some big politician like John Bolton getting his book rushed to print like in three months. But he probably spent several months writing it, so maybe eight, nine months. This is very, very rare. And to do it with 10 books, it's probably never been done before. That's what my, my boss, John Hunt, said to me. It's never been done before. Yeah, I remember listening to a podcast with Jocko. He's a retired special forces. I don't know if you've heard about him. And he had a situation where he wanted to get a book done by Christmas season. And the publisher's like, no, it's impossible. So he's like, forget it. He started his own publishing company and made it done, got it done. Yes. But he said it was not easy. It took a lot of effort. Right. So for you, like this is what's blowing my mind, not just to bring one book, but 10 books in this short period of time, that's like herding cats, man. You have yeah. some mad skills. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually like teaching cats to play in a symphony, and then I'll show up <laughs> in time for the recording. <laughs> yeah, because it's different than anything they've known. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, let's do this. Let's, let's break this down. How the podcast works normally. Again, this is a bonus episode, so it's outside the normal. Normally, what we do is we go back and we hear your story. Then we 
get the practical steps of how you overcome what you've struggled with in life or the challenge you faced. And then we transition to where you are today and where you're going. So right now, your challenge was bringing content to the masses in a very short period of time. So let's pick one of the books. Because I know when I was looking at some of the covers, you know, what is the percentage you're in publishing? I know it's a very high percentage that a book's bought based on the cover and the title, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I opened up the Resilience series, Handling Anxiety in a Time of Crisis. And I was immediately like interested by the cover. It's got the egg yeah. clamp around it. Yeah. Man, that was yeah. brilliant. I don't know who thought of that, yeah. but that was genius. Yeah. I, I instantly connected with that. So when you're biting this elephant one bite at a time, but you have to do it so fast, what are the steps, Tim, to make this happen? Like, How did this really become a reality? Well, it could never have happened without the entire publishing team being on board for it. We were taking processes which normally take a month, like editing a manuscript, and we were saying, okay, you're doing this in a day. Because usually people have got several manuscripts and things sort of move along slowly. So we had to have everybody committed to doing their job in a day. So in production, it went through each step at a time. That in itself is not possible. Backing up a little further with the authors, I had to have a timeline with each of the 10 of them. So I ended up setting up this spreadsheet to follow each of the authors through the several stages of getting their books ready. They had to give me their draft manuscript in 10 days. That was their first deadline. I went through each draft manuscript because I had to be really clear with my, my authors. If it's, it's got to be practical. It's got to be skills people can build for the crisis. It's not philosophy. It's, it's, it's not musings. It's direct. It's relevant. It helps you get better at this now, whether it's handling anxiety, dealing with loss, um, the inner spiritual journey helps you get better now. And so not, and, and uh, the other thing that I involved them all in is they all chose their own covers. Most publishing houses don't do this, by the way. Nice. Most publishing houses, there's like somebody whose job it is to select an image and put it on each. On each. Yep. Our company's pretty good at this. We like to have author involvement, but in this case, it was like, it's got to do two things. It's got to clearly show the audience, show the potential readers what the book is about. It's got to match the title. And it's got to be something that has resonance for you in it. And so that was the case with each of these images. And some of them, in some cases, the authors and I went back and forth about what was going to be on the cover. And even the title itself, I wanted people to read this title and know exactly what they were getting. So, you know, navigating loss, that's pretty obvious. Handling anxiety, connect with nature. Everybody should know exactly what they're getting and they should see it at a glance. So we made sure that these books have this, have this immediate obvious resonance for for the readers sometimes you buy a book you don't even really know what's inside of it yeah no absolutely the and here. then let me ask you a question too this sure. is on topic but off topic i heard a percentage one time that 70 percent of non-fiction books only sell like 140 copies and i think that was a self-publishing statistic so this is a very powerful series it seems i mean i haven't got to read it yet because it hasn't just launched today yeah but the concept the people you get involved like i know we had dr gleb uh sapersky on the show mm -hmm. and he's an expert at avoidance so disaster yeah. avoidance so it looks like you have a very powerful powerful pack here oh yeah 
But when you have books like this, what is the normal, like you're expecting, like this is how many copies will normally sell. And with this and pushing it, this is something that people really need. How can we help more people read it? Because I remember as a kid, you know, I hated reading, but I don't even know if you'd had this Mm -hmm. where you were at, but in elementary school, they'd come and once a month, they'd have the book publishers come in and you buy the books and it was like a special day, right? I used to buy books and collect them based on the cover, but never read them, right? Like I bought Jack London, a call in the wild because I had a cool dog in the front, right? Yeah, yeah. But with this, this is content people do need to absorb and read. So what's the average and how can we help you break that average? Mm -hmm. So you're right. The average new book, in fact, throughout the English language, the average new book sells between 200 and 500 copies in its first year. Now, there's over one and a half million new books coming out every year. And think about that. That means the midpoint is two to 500 copies. That means most books only sell to the friends and family of the author and maybe a few, a few specialists. Mm-hmm. Book business is really, really hard. There's so much out there. So having a book break through to where people hear about it, talk about it, tell their friends about it, that's an incredibly difficult prospect. Some big publishers with huge pockets, they can do things like promote a, a Harry Potter series or something like that. Put it in all the bookstores and you know, get it well-reviewed in the New York Times. But for most people who've just got a, a, a good idea and a brilliant, uh, you know, a brilliant manuscript, it's a really hard process getting them published. So one of the unique things that we've done with the series of 10 is all 10 of our authors ha- are professionals, right? Some of them have written several books I've myself have written 10. Um, mm-hmm. We've made an agreement that we are all going to help promote each other's books. So we're all working together. Think of it like this. If you had little tiny fires in a forest, you might not see it from the sky. But if you had 10 fires in a circle, you'd be more likely to see it from the sky. So the authors have agreed to become a collaborative team. And you're right. Authors are they're like cats, right? They don't usually collaborate. <laughs> we're agreeing to work together. Gleb has been really helpful, helping us find other great venues like your, like your own to get the story out about these, these books. So as we all work together, we hope that it'll come more to the attention of people. Because ultimately, like no other, no other set of books I've been involved with, all of the authors are committed to this because of what they've got to give. They've, they're masters at one element of resilience. They want others to get those skills so that we can all get better at being our best self at this time of crisis. That's awesome, man. Now, Tim, you're an author yourself and you wrote one of these 10 books. Let's give yes. the audience a taste. So if you're listening out there to our audience, you know, this is a test. We're doing not only the podcast, but we're doing the video cast. So sorry, you have to see me on that side of the screen. Just focus on Tim. But talk about your book. Talk about your book to the audience and how will it help them? Like if they pick up your book and read it, what can they expect? And then maybe some practical steps just to get them started. Sure. My book is one of two in the series, which is primarily for business and organizational audiences. The others deal with, you know, emotional issues and spiritual issues and practical issues. But mine is the business of communication. So for everybody whose job they're now doing at home, they're probably doing it by making Skype calls, by giving webinars, by having meetings that are online. So they have to learn how to communicate through this box of their computer. Most of us are used to a professional context where we're sitting in a room with others as we're communicating. And 
there's we don't really get yet just what a big shift it is to have to have everybody communicate on meetings. We're starting to talk about Zoom fatigue. But really, the challenges are bigger than that. When you think about it, I like your audience to, to imagine they're, they're at a typical meeting room, right, with their, with their colleagues. Everybody's sitting there around the table. One person is speaking. Everybody else is kind of forced by social cues to look at them. Maybe somebody's being rude, but they're, and they're texting under the table. But for the most part, everybody's pretending to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Now, take all of that and throw it away. Instead, everybody on the team is sitting at home, maybe in their pajamas, with their computer screen, and they're looking at their colleague speaking there. But the minute the person that's speaking is getting a little bit boring, what do you do? You check your texts. A new email pops up on the screen, or there's a document you're working on, you think, well, maybe, well, this person's rambling on, I can do a little bit of that. And so they are leaving the conversation, and you don't even know. Uh, I say that our computer is a weapon of mass distraction. (laughs) It's so hard to have people pay attention for meaningful content. Sure, we can have a conversation with grandma on Skype or something like that. That's just fine. But when you need people to pay attention, you need to exchange information, you would be surprised how much is lost. So the point of this book is to give people the skills and techniques that they can use to make sure that when they're communicating online, their message is getting across. People are taking the information and remembering it for the future. Because otherwise, we're going to see a massive drop in productivity as we move to online, mm-hmm. whether in webinars or, or meetings. And that's what this book is helping fix. Now, how do you think generational differences affect this? Because I know watching my teenagers, looking at my generation and looking at my parents' generation, it's a respect. I mean, to me, I don't know if that's the right word, but there's a respect. Like if someone's speaking, I'm listening. Even if I'm not interested, I'm interested. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember there's a gentleman named Sam White, who was a vice president of a large corporation. And I got to work with him and learn so much from him for just a short period of time. And I remember at one point, a guy came in his office and it was so mind boggling, boring. And even I was drifting off <laughs> and I was just like, just, and Sam was just asking him personal questions and engaging. And Tim, I kid you not, this meeting went on like an hour and a half. Something that could have been done in five minutes. <laughs> and when it was over, I was literally sleepy. And I told Sam, I'm like, how did you do that? And he's like, people matter. And he's like, that gentleman probably nobody listens to. I was never knew. I'm not into com- the guy was talking about comic books in this multi-million dollar meeting. And he's like, he likes comic books. I want to learn about comic books. We talk about comic books. But again, that generation, he's like, I'm going to focus on learning and being attentive. My generation was, oh, I need to respect my elders. I'm going to listen and smile, but inside I'm dying. This other generation <laughs> is like, I don't want to be here. Meeting's over. Click. So does your book address any of the generational differences? Uh, Not specifically. And I can speak quite clearly to some of them and and talk about how the book does, does manage that. I am 62. My son is turning 30 this month. Nice. He's like sort of 
classic millennial and his his friends uh when i go up and visit him i often get together with with some of them as well and you know they're all on on their phones you know they they're they're texting almost constantly those of them who work and and they have to 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 work they're really great at multitasking and i have a lot of respect for this about millennials they don't like to waste time so if you are not communicating effectively they won't listen to you mm-hmm. i as a professional communicator there's something about that i respect and a lot of people who are older tend to think you need to listen to me because i'm in a senior position to you that frankly doesn't work quite often with millennials yeah i say but you know it should be communication is on the shoulders of the person communicating if you're speaking or writing or broadcasting it's up to you to be interesting to be engaging you have to adapt to your audience don't expect they'll listen to you you got to pay people a lot to listen to you if you're going to be boring <laughs> So I, I not only do I respect that, but I notice that some millennials have got a shorter attention span because there's so much more out there that needs to be paid attention to. So they're great at being selective. They also tend to multitask, but that's because they're looking for stuff that's interesting. When I'm when they find something that's interesting, I found millennials are capable of having an incredibly expanded attention span. For example, my son loves role play uh board games mm-hmm. where th- him and four or five friends will get together and they will play an imaginative creative collaborative storytelling game for 6 hours <laughs> and right. we thought monopoly was bad in six our generation hours and they'll love every minute of it they don't get bored they have an incredible span of attention but for them paying attention means going both ways it's got to be interactive they've got to be participants co-creators in what's going on personally i love that about them they don't want to be passive observers they need to get involved with their media and their communication but then they will be engaged all day and maybe all night long so nice. this is something that our book does address and that is when you're engaging for virtual communication you need to find ways to be engaged and interactive with your audience you can't expect them to sit back passively and listen well for the audience listening right now to us they have meetings many of them that they have to conduct now through these zoom calls and skype calls and squadcast give them a couple tips what tips they can read the book obviously and get a whole bunch yep. more but what's two or three solid tips they can start applying today to help right so for engagement uh a, a couple of real real crucial things the first is is what you're saying important to everybody who's listening if you're only speaking to half of your audience well you should be having a sub meeting and just talk to them and, and i will in fact say one of the other books in the series is specifically on virtual teams which is much more focused on how to do business team teamwork but so make sure that, it, that what you're saying matters to everybody listening or else invite them to a different call don't expect someone to listen to something that's not important to them. So basically like segment the meeting, put the all the information exactly. that's for right. all up top. Exactly. Then drop off all right, if you're not in this group, leave and then exactly. keep going down yeah. like for respect of time. Right. So maybe have maybe have 5 or 10 minutes for everybody and then say okay, now you're going to break in sub meetings. 30 minutes for your sub meetings and then we're going to come back, wrap up, read out at the end. So that's the the, the respect people's time and if it's not important, 
cut it out. And even if it is important, how short can you make it? Don't ramble. You're inviting people to dis disconnect. And then yeah. where's the element of genuine interactivity? Not just, you know, the, the, the clap or thumbs up little things that you get on, uh, on Zoom. But where's the genuine interactivity? Where are you, the presenter, valuing the contribution of those who are in on the call? So one of the things that I really love for this is what I call a reverse Q&A. Typically, a speaker will share their information and then say, any questions? As if implying that if you weren't smart enough to get it all one time around, he or she will say it again, <laughs> say it again, right? So I think it's better if you've got a short presentation to then say at the end, now, I've got some questions for you. And ask questions that are designed to gain something, new insights, new reflections from the audience. And then the person who's speaking should be making notes. What have I learned from those who've been listening to me on this call? Yep. So that's one simple way that you can, in, you can inject genuine interactivity into any communication. Okay. You have one more you can share with us? Like one more that people, they're behind their screen now. They've not really done that in the past. They're used to, yeah. you know, door to door, business to business, personal one-on-one. -on -one, and now... We get a little camera yeah. flicking back and forth. What do you what right. do you tell them? So I would say this is the where we start the book. We call this uh, big fails and quick fixes. Your on-screen presence really matters, and a lot of people because they're used to doing on-screen you know chats with grandma, uh, they've got sloppy on-screen presence. And there's mm -hmm. a couple of things that you can do to really fix that up. So these are the biggest problems that we see: backlighting. People have an open window behind them or a light behind them so that their face is all dark. You can't really see it clearly. But if you can't see the person's face, you're not picking up the cues that they are sending about what's important to them, what their emotional state is, how much focus they've got. So mm. watch how you appear on screen. The second thing is what I call down the well. And this is people down who've the got well. their, lot, their laptop set for where they could write. I, let me do this, this as a quick experiment for you, actually, for those who are viewing the podcast. So this is backlight. There you go. Yeah. I just opened the curtains behind me. My face is now invisible. Yeah. So the second thing down, down the well is if you took, the, uh, took it and you put it like this, now I could type easily, but when you look at me, all you see is one big giant chin. You're looking right up at the person as if you, the viewer, are down in the well. Yeah, so I always call that the triple chin effect. Like, right, why the exactly. hell do you do that? Why exactly. do you do that? Put it up on a box like I just did now. Now I'm making, I'm looking straight at, at the, uh, the screen. And the third thing is, where are you looking? People make the mistake when they're speaking of looking at the person's picture on the screen. But that's not what you're looking at. You're looking at me through the camera. So when I'm talking to you, I should be looking at the camera, that little green light at the top. Yeah. And for people who aren't used to that, that could be really disturbing. But I'm going to exaggerate it here by getting a little close to the screen, David. If I look at you, now you can see my eyes are clearly looking down like I'm not making eye contact. I'm disconnected. Maybe I'm ashamed. Maybe I'm not looking because something's going on with me. So subconsciously, we're making all kinds of weird adjustments when somebody's looking down. Yep. You just have to do that. I just changed it. Now I'm looking at the camera. And you feel me connecting with you. This is a tough skill, right? Broadcasters are really good at doing it. They look straight into the camera, but they're broadcasting to America. So 
you got to practice that. One of the things that I find helps is if you simply take a little sticky note, draw a happy face on it, and stick it next to the camera. Nice. That's a good tip. Look at the camera. Because when you look at the camera, you know what? You're looking straight at the people you're talking to. That's a great tip because this is only my third video cast. So uh-huh. I probably broke every single rule you just said. <laughs> Bad lighting. I got like the wrong angles, mic in my face. I got to, you know, doing everything you said and looking. I keep looking at you because I feel like respectful. Look at you in the eye. Yeah. But your yeah. eyes right there. Exactly. Yeah. So, hey, this is helping me. Sticky notes. All our listeners, remarkable audience. Sticky notes next to the camera. Remind us what yeah. we got to do. Wow. Well, that's awesome, Tim. Um, when it comes to this series, it just released today, digital eBooks, mm-hmm. a lot of great content. Then the hard copies are coming out, be able to ship all over. What's next for you? Like what's next in Tim's world? Huh? I've got another book coming out at the end of May. And I'm really going to be doing a lot of um, speaking about it in, uh, in the fall. It's about truth and politics. And actually, I co-wrote this with your other guest, Gleb Spursky. That's how he and I met. We both have a passion for truth. We believe truth is nonpartisan. In fact, it's transpartisan. Every American should care about truth when it comes to our politics, our economics, and our health. We're learning this now as we're dealing with the the pandemic. False information can kill people, right? You know, something is... Even a, a false test can mean somebody who's contagious is walking around thinking they don't have the virus. But when that information is on a national scale, false tests can make economies open up too quick, can make people think that this is safe, but in fact, it's dangerous, or can make people think this is dangerous, when in fact, it should be allowed to flourish. In our politics, if we don't have a standard for truth, that people of different political stripes have no basis for negotiating an agreement or a compromise. We divide into two tribes that can easily just hate each other and think that the other is lying. So this book is called Pro-Truth. And the basis of it is that only when people value truth and have a standard for truth, can we come together and find common ground. That's essential for a democracy. So I'm excited about this book. It'll be available later this month. Pro-truth, a practical plan for putting truth back in politics is something I'm really passionate about. And I think it matters so much for our country that regardless of your political beliefs, you value the truth. Yeah, I'm right up your alley, man, because I don't really care what the truth is at times. I just want to know what it is. Because once you know what you have to work with, you can build from there. And I've always wondered, you know, when our when our founding fathers got together, it was a constitutional republic and they formed this system of checks and balances and it's beautiful and it worked. But I, I forget who it was. You probably know. One of the, the framers said, this is the greatest you know, system ever known to man, but when morality fails, this is useless. Do you remember who that was? I mean, I they don't. used other words. I don't, but yeah. but I, I don't know if it was Adams, but they basically said, you know, by a constitutional republic and forming this great system, as long as people are moral and have integrity, we have no issues. But when you start getting the people in office like we have today who are absolute liars caught and nothing happens to them, yeah, we get these big problems. So let me ask you this question again. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know. I believe truth, you know, shall set you free. Um, why is it that it's in 2020 
We have polygraph tests, we have drugs, we have all sorts of machines and mechanisms the government actively can use inexpensively to tell the truth. Why don't we strap all our politicians in while they take the oath of office? And before you take office, even before you run for office, do you line up with the beliefs of the country or are you a terrorist? Why isn't that happening? Is it just because every like 90% of our politicians would be unemployed? Uh, <laughs> I think that having politicians make a commitment to the truth is really important. And, you know, the reality is politicians are tempted to lie because sometimes the truth is inconvenient, right? Mm -hmm. So the temptation is always there. Unless citizens hold them to account, unless a lie has a consequence because people will not vote for you, people will call you out and say, you're not trustworthy because you're not trustworthy. You cannot lead us. And that needs to come from, from us, the citizens. So one of the things that this book is connected to is something called the Pro-Truth Pledge, which is a uh, protruthpledge.org is a website that citizens can go to and they can sign up voluntarily. That means you won't spread misinformation in social media. You will stand up for those who speak the truth regardless of their politics. And you will call to account people in a sense on your side who are spreading in misinformation and tell them not to do it. It's harmful to democracy. That same pledge holds our leaders to account. If you're running for office and you sign the pledge, that means you've said you will not spread misinformation on the campaign trail. And if you do, other people who've signed can call you out on it. And the campaign itself will say, no, you are lying here. You can't be a pledge holder and deliberately tell a lie. They give people the opportunity to correct themselves. And over a, a couple of hundred so far uh, representatives in the the, the federal and state legislatures have signed on to this, making a pledge that they will be honest in serving their citizens' interests. So that's a campaign that we want this book to be the, the spearhead for, so that more people will sign on and we'll see that we as the people can say to our, our political leaders, it matters to us that you're telling us the truth. And if you don't tell us the truth, we won't vote for you. And we'll hold you accountable. Oh, I'm, I'll put a link to that protruthpledge.org in the show notes. But is there, if someone breaks this agreement, is there mm -hmm. like a, boom, look at these are the chucklehead page? Is this like, yeah. these are the scumbag liars? Exactly. No, we do it two, two ways. First of all, often when people spread misinformation, they don't realize that they're lying, right? There's so much stuff that's out there in social media. Somebody can simply retweet an article. They don't, that's, it's not, we, we, the first thing is we don't, we take good faith as the yeah, baseline, right? So somebody that. makes a mistake, though, we will say, this is an error. That person will be contacted. And this has happened to us with, uh, with politicians in um, the elections from a year and a half ago. People tweeted stuff that was false. It was reported on the pro-truth that they, they'd signed the pledge. They were contacted. They either retract, took the tweet down, or they often said, I made an error in posting this tweet. This is the correct information. And then they took the, the, the bad one down. So they were holding themselves accountable. Fantastic that this yeah. is happening. Needs, and that's it's so human. obvious, right? Yeah, that's but, human nature. Right. Sometimes we fall for stuff and we, whoa, I got to correct yeah. it. So they're being yeah. responsible. Right. Now, I have to say to date, we haven't had the issue of a politician abusing the pro-truth pledge by signing it and then deliberately saying something false. But that's going to happen. It's going to happen because right now there's the advantage of signing it, right? But in the future, people who haven't signed it will say, well, I can't afford to have my opponent sign this pledge. 
but I haven't signed it, so I'm going to sign it too, even though I don't really believe it. That's just going to happen. That's when the pledge is going to have to say, first of all, here's your warning. You signed this, but then you lied. But the, the politician ignores that. Then we come out and we say, this person has signed the pledge and they lied. And guess what? That's a news story. Mm-hmm. That's a news story. A politician signed a pledge saying they would tell the truth and then deliberately lied and didn't correct it when it was, was shown to them. That'll get coverage. So there'll be a penalty for politicians that do that. Good. Yeah. I mean, we need more and more accountability. I'm on the uh, very extreme harsh side, to be quite blunt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think murderers, rapists, pedophiles, they should be, as long as it's proven and for sure, put them to death, clean up the system. And then all these liars and they're terrorists to our own nation. They're absolutely, I mean, they're destroying our country from the inside out. I think those people should be in prison for life. So, you know, there's a lot of politicians on both sides of the parties. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, a liar is a liar. And a mm-hmm. destructive mm-hmm. force is a destructive yep. force. So Absolutely. I'm all about truth. And I think this is a great thing you're doing. So, well, listen, we, this show is a little bit different in the format and what we normally do, but I really thank you for being on the show. I'm so thankful for the series you put together and the information you're bringing to the global population so they can get help during this time. Cause there's so many questions. This is new territory. Um, but before we go, is there anything else we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? Is there anything we miss or anything you'd like to add? Um, I would just say this as a, as a message to your listeners and it comes back to resilience. It's so tempting to just want the world to go back to the way it was. And that temptation is so strong that we can think that by willing it, we can make that happen. And so it's going to be easy to disregard information that says, no, this crisis is going to be with us for a long time. And it's going to be easy for us to, to magically think our way into going outside and not being safe into thinking I might not get this disease here. I probably won't spread it there. And by that inadvertently putting people at risk, that's happening all around the country right now. So I think that it's more personally responsible and it's more socially responsible to say, this is a change and I have to decide who I want to become. Who I've been isn't who I can be. And this virus is a challenge to me personally, as well as to my nation. So I have to be my best self. I've got to be a better self. And I can take what's in these books and I can build that better self. I can become a better communicator. I can become better connected with the people around me that I care about. I can become more aware of nature and take solace from from that. I can deal with my own anxiety so that I don't go off the edge and get angry or lash out, but I can be a calm center for other people. All of these things are within my grasp. These books are going to help people get there. So that's my wish for your leaders, that you be your readers, uh, your your readers, my wish for your (laughs) listeners your leaders, your readers, your listeners. That's right, all <laughs> of them. You take becoming your most resilient self as something you can personally do starting now. And use our books. Take them, take everything of value from them. And be the person who helps this nation get back on its feet. Amen to that, brother. Let's do one more thing. Yeah. Parting thought to the listeners, what you just said was amazing. Define what resilience is to you before we go. Mm-hmm. What, what's that yeah. thought? What is yeah. resilience? Like for us as a listener, 
What Technically, is resilience? resilience is the ability to spring back. If you bend over a tree, a young tree, it'll come back upright. On a larger picture, it means the ability to respond and restore yourself after there has been damage. In the bigger picture, what we're facing now is the ability to evolve in the face of a crisis. We, there's no back we can get to. We have to become something new and something better. And I would say uh, there's, there's one huge example that we're all vaguely aware about when it comes to adapting and evolving. And that is when that giant asteroid crashed into the earth hundreds of millions of go, years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs. We all, re, we all know about this. So much of life went extinct. But you know what? It didn't wipe out the dinosaurs. Some of them survived. and They survived by very quickly evolving. They evolved into birds. They learned how to fly and spread. And that really is the challenge for us. Can we evolve into birds and learn how to fly? My apologies, I had that muted. Taking what we have to work with and then adapting and to change and to, to overcome, that's the key. That is absolutely yeah. the key, adapt and overcome. Um, man, I thank you for being on the show, Tim, so much. I really do. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes for you if someone has a question or to reach out. And then, you know, you and I just met and I hope we continue the conversation and the friendship and I, I really appreciate it. And then when your new book comes out on politics, I truth you and uh, Glebs, that'll be great to try to get a copy of and read that. And then, you know, everybody in the world has a little bit different. Like you and I don't agree maybe on evolution. Like I don't have the same pers- like viewpoint, uh-huh. but the base concept of adapt and overcome, we do agree with. And then Absolutely. everybody listening around the world, this is a series by experts in their field where despite, yeah, we all have a little bit different viewpoint, there's fundamental truths in these books. So look for them online. Look for them. I need to look at the camera. I keep looking at my other screen, the book covers. <laughs> look for them online. Look for them on Amazon, the other retailers. And Tim, what's the best way they can get copies? Is there a uh, website that's better yes, than the other is. site? Yeah. What is that? Uh, the easiest thing to do is to come to the book's website, which is www.resilience hyphen books.com resilience hyphen books.com there you see all the books for the paragraph description of each of them and there's a link at the bottom of each book you can click on and that takes you to the online distributors and, and retailers uh, that you can go to and then you can select whatever country you're in whatever way you want to purchase a couple of clicks you're there awesome well thank you tim so much for being here to our audience Uh, Check out the show notes, whether you're looking through Apple or Stitcher or Google Podcasts. Um, We're thankful for our guests. We're thankful for this bonus episode. Reach out to us if you need any help. We love you. Have a great day. And like the slogan says, listen to the podcast, but do it, repeat it, and have a great life. We love you. Until next time, this is Dave Passman with the Remarkable People Podcast. Take care. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. 
do. Repeat. For life.